This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, before I tell you what's coming up on today's episode, do you like quizzes? Would you like to join the Cabinet? It's OK, it's a fictional Cabinet, it's not the real one. Um, every day on my Times Radio show, we play our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? It's very easy. Ten questions, loosely connected to ten Cabinet jobs. The more questions you get right, the better the job you get, taking your place alongside our listeners and guests. And if you make it all the way to Number 10 and get that right, you'll cross the threshold and become our show's Prime Minister. So, if you and you get a certificate. It's very, very exciting. So, if you want to come on and play the quiz, email me now, matt.chorley at times.radio, matt.chorley at times.radio, include your name and your number, and we'll get you on the radio very soon. Coming up on today's episode, planes, trains and automobiles and ferries with Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary. We had him on the show and we asked him about transport. I know, it's a radical departure from the usual, you know, Transport Secretary on a shout him about COVID or something. Uh, but it was really fascinating, uh, lots of interesting stuff, whether you can get a plane to fly across the Atlantic without harming the environment. Uh, is your holiday safe? Are P&O going to have to rehire all their stuff? Uh, all that's coming up on the uh, podcast in just a moment. But first, as ever, on a Tuesday, it's our columnist panel, and it must be time for these two. Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yes, it's everybody's favourite time of the week. I'm joined in the studio by Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And beaming in from outer space, it's David Aronovich. Morning. What do you mean cutting no costs? Well, well you know, the big... Save your ha- having us on. You don't pay us a thing. Well, it's all part of your big money times deal, though, isn't it? <laughs> all that evil lizard money that you've got. Well, that is true. That does come in handy. (laughs) Uh, Talking of um, billionaires spending their money wisely or otherwise, um, (laughs) Elon Musk, $54 billion to buy Twitter. Is that a good idea, David? Uh, Which bit of it? Paying that much for it? Um, Or it's, you know, we are in such a mess about all this, aren't we? Um, and it was all, I suppose, so predictable. Uh, when I first went on Twitter, it was largely a place where you did jokes and stuff like that, and you kind of had nice little sequences about 
films in which you took out the, the one word and put in another or something like that. And people did that. And then it became, um, for me, a really useful journalistic tool. Once you tried to, once you'd filtered out all the, uh, all the abuse, which gradually became greater and greater and the disinformation, filter all that, use it as a, 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 as a, as a really good tool. Um, so I use Twitter a lot. Uh, for a variety of purposes, most of them, I would say, you know, kind of pretty positive, although I can get a bit snarky from time to time. Um, <laughs> but it is a very, very, very powerful tool. And I suppose um, uh, Timothy Gartner-Ash, uh, the writer, had a, a very good thread about this actually on Twitter earlier, um, where he said, essentially, some of Musk's ideas are quite good, like making the algorithms behind Twitter completely transparent. That's That's not a bad idea. But essentially what he said is, here's one chat, takes over, of his own um, whim, an entire international platform for communication without any kind of, you know, without any proper discussion with it, without any kind of debate or or anything like that. It just happens. And then we then take what he what he gives us. Um, The secondary question, of course, is what he actually intends to do with it, which is the second part of your kind of good. It's a bad idea in the sense of it's not really particularly democratic or accountable. um, is it a bad idea in terms of what Elon Musk will do with it? And that goes to the heart of a really big problem that we we are absolutely unable to solve. What does he mean by free speech absolutism? Does he mean by it that, for example, child pornographers or people who, or just people who want to tell you how much they lust after children should be free to speak? If he doesn't mean that, then where is he drawing the line? And why is he drawing the line where he is? And by the way, that's not just his problem. That's our problem with almost all discussion of things like online harms. Danny. Exactly. I mean, David, you're quite right. And uh, this whole thing about, you know, cancel culture and um, freedom of speech um, runs into the immediate problem you've just raised. Uh, What do we do about child pornography? What do you do about uh, direct racist insults uh, or, um, you know, the the famous uh, shouting fire in a crowded cinema or uh, direct um, threat to somebody's life? Uh, We don't regard all speech uh, legally as being... uh, um, acceptable or um, we don't allow all of it uh, and we also don't um, as a private organisations they're under no uh, responsibility to ca- carry things that they think will make uh, society worse um, they have to make judgments and what's more they will make judgments because um, I think that an idea that you're going to that he's going to allow absolutely everything he just will find that he won't do that um, so the question is merely one of proportion, where you draw the line. Uh, if he was to say, I think Twitter has gone too far in censoring uh, people's opinions and we ought to tilt it back, um, well, that would be, I think, a more coherent point than free speech absolutism. He's also got to do something, you know, he's, he's paid $54 billion, he's got to service the debt on Twitter, uh, and he's therefore got to make some money out of it. And then the question is, who's going to advertise against the content on Twitter? And he's got to make a decision about um, the demographics of Twitter, because the demographics of Twitter lean towards uh middle-class and upper-middle-class people and um, to, and city dwellers and uh, have those kind of values. Will they stay on Twitter? Will they want to engage in Twitter? Will they buy goods promoted on Twitter uh, if Twitter is um, promoting a lot of things that they find deeply offensive? So there's a commercial decision there. So I think this kind of top line that he's got, which is I'm a free speech absolutist, will not survive his encounter with actually being in charge. 
There is this interesting question, isn't there, David? The, 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 I mean, the, the, the Donald Trump question. The, the, why is Donald Trump not on Twitter, but, you know, other other um, world leaders are on Twitter? Actually, other, you know, you can find most of, um, uh, you know, the Taliban and ISIS on Twitter if you go looking for it. <laughs> Um, uh, but the the defence was always what is up to Twitter it's their thing they can pick and choose but it's the point at which was just what was just a thing uh, you know a private company running a doing a thing and they can pick and choose it's now so ingrained it's it's one of those things that's gone from a platform to utility almost isn't it this was a point of distinction between me and Danny and me and <clears throat> Hugo Rifkin uh, from quite early on, really, although I never really totally resolved it. I don't think any of us did, which was when you have a platform that is this big, the idea that they simply kind of make their own little rules to suit themselves and that if they don't like a whole lot of people, um, then they'll cast them out is actually problematic because it means those people whether you like it or not, are effectively prevented from having their voices heard on this major on this major platform. Now, the problem with Donald Trump is he wasn't cast out because people didn't disagree with him. As my understanding is, he was cast out because he was deemed to have broken the disinformation rules on both the pandemic um, and on the question of his own uh, um, uh, uh, of Joe Biden's election. In other, he failed the disinformation tests, which is always a problem, by the way, when you're judging free speech and so on. And we might argue that disinformation should not actually, of most kinds, should not actually be subject to that kind of uh, censorship. It's, it, 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 it's probably the right. It's probably the right view in the end. In the end, it becomes an absurdity that the former president of the United States is per se not allowed to not allowed to tweet. But the part of the problem with that is it also casts you know, some doubt on why it is a person like that became president in the first place, but they did. Um, uh, so there are all kinds of uh, problems I- I- in the mix there. Now, we've, we're having our own big discussions about online harm. So this is the other problem that Elon Musk faces, essentially, which is even uh, quite right-wing governments uh, uh, across the place, they are pretty much in favour of uh, significant aspects of uh, regulation or censorship on major and powerful online platforms and so on. Uh, and he's going to fall foul of that. Um, and I just, I, I do feel we bodged this conversation and this discussion hugely over the course of the last 10 years, really. I don't think you can uh, argue that a private organisation uh, ought not to own Twitter because it wouldn't have created it in the first place. And True. And, and so... Um, you know, inevitably, people are going to um, own and organise platforms and then they're going to make some rules about uh, people being on it. And my view is we slowly but surely um, refine those rules and they're a bit messy and over time they improve. And, you know, my view is the disinformation and abuse rules were good things to introduce, um, that uh, Twitter has begun to introduce rules that suggest... You have to read an article, or that prompt they don't they, they prompt you to read an article before you comment on it. Uh, for example, I think that's a good thing. Um, so uh, you know, people do find ways about it. They 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 screen and also the headlines if, if you if you try to swear swear now, I'm not <laughs> I'm giving something away. Uh, if you try if you use certain words in a tweet, a thing pops up and says, are you sure you want to do that? Because actually it's better if you don't. No, I think all those things are, are good for uh, civilising the discussion. And they're what's always happened with new types of publication. We've begun to develop rules and laws and norms about them. So, um, you know, 
I, I just think um, we're never going to go away, and it'll never be less less than messy because ultimately these, these are about proportionality. So it is a question uh, of uh, who the the bad impact is on whether the bad impact is serious enough to justify restricting true. someone else's liberty to 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 uh, commit that harm. True, but the part, the part of the problem here is the way in which uh, governments have looked at online harms, this government has looked at online harms, for example, is to say you have a duty, a preemptive duty to make sure that this stuff doesn't appear. Now, what that invites companies to do is to have sweeping algorithms that sweep up all kinds of things so they don't get caught in the provisions of the law and get, uh, suffer huge fines. So what you get is a really clumsy form of uh, mega censorship, uh, unless you're careful. And the, and the thing is, Danny... People keep on insisting that things should be added to that censorship. They very rarely insist that things should be taken away from it. So gradually, bit by bit, you move to a situation whereby people are censored. Now, we might regard that, we might regard the rules that Twitter comes up at any uh, time as good or as being or as being bad. Uh, the problem we have is how we make a decision in democracies as to what those rules should be. Um, and that is a and that's a really tricky business. Uh, the other thing that struck me is we sort of have this conversation, you know, what's happening on on uh, Twitter and Facebook. While while you know, if you pick up a copy of the Times, you know, it says and then the Times take uh, uh, committed to abiding by the Independent Press Standards Organisation. There's a debate about Ofcom. You know, Ofcom regulates Times Radio in the same way it does uh, other broadcasters. Got the BBC Trust and so on. You know, really, really getting knotted up in the exactly what you can and can't say at certain times of the day and all of that. Well, actually, far more people are on Twitter and Facebook and TikTok than are what listening now. I, I mean, slightly more people than listening now, um, <laughs> because because we're developing systems that try to uh, get the balance right, and that's very hard. We'll never ever have got the balance completely right at any moment, but we can make improvements. Uh, Jonathan Rausch has written a very good book called The Constitution of Knowledge, and it deals with precisely the development of these kind of norms and rules. And one of the examples he gives is Wikipedia and the way that's gradually improved um, and uh, the way that it has begun to develop some sort of rules about how we can tell whether knowledge in, in it is true and whether it's not true. And newspapers have done the same thing. You know, I'm always keen on saying when the Times began, uh, one of the ways that it financed itself was by selling um, people the right to suppress gossip about themselves. Right? So, you know, and and um, and it was only actually it took a bit of time. The Times is 1785. So it was probably the 1820s before it, it got editors who rejected that model and who rejected also being financed by government or a major politician like Addington, who was on Pitt. Addington's brother was very involved in uh, sort of putting propaganda into the paper on a virtually sort of semi-full-time basis. Uh, and and um, once they'd done that, we got an editor called Thomas Barnes who'd begun to move the Times towards independence. And um, these things develop. And yeah. what's happening with Twitter is we're going through that. Maybe we should revive that as a business model. I think if, if, yeah. Yeah, if, you, if you want to pay me to suppress your gossip on Times Radio, we could definitely do that. Let's turn our attention now to anonymous sources. We've talked about this on, uh, on the show before. But uh, a particularly dire example of this, of the anonymous source, the Tory MP who claimed that Angela Rayner's legs distracted Boris Johnson at the dispatch box. Uh, a claim, Danny, which I felt said more about Boris Johnson than it did about Angela Rayner. <laughs> 
Uh, it was just a kind of miserable story. And I, I feel really, I mean, it's sort of a, almost embarrassing to have to talk about it. I feel so badly for Angela Rayner and indeed actually for women in politics. This is pretty uh, grim and it's a wake-up call for all men, I think, um, uh, about um, what women face in public life. And um, so it's good to read it from that point of view, but I don't know what on earth anybody who was involved with that story was thinking of. I tend to concentrate, you know, partly because I'm a conservative peer, I think, to concentrate on the fact that there were conservatives who uh, uh, were involved in a briefing of that story. And I, I don't, th- rather than on the, the newspaper uh, itself, but um, because I want to, you know, I think that um, the idea that any sort of political ally of mine would engage themselves in something as grim as that is is depressing. Uh, David, what did you make of it? Um, the reason why I wanted to talk about this was not that the story w- wasn't awful. Of course, it's, uh, it, it, it is awful, and Dan is quite right. It shows a kind of uh, s- some attitudes which are hard-dying, frankly, uh, and actually more alive than we sometimes care to think. No, what got me was the fact that it was a story at all. If you're going to say something like that to a journalist, your name should be in the publication, attached to the thing that you have said, or the story shouldn't run. That's as simple as that, as far as I'm concerned. If you And, and this happens far too much, which is essentially um, people... And, and the other problem is, actually, we can't even be sure that this was said at all. Uh, the same journalist a few uh, months ago ran a story about how four Labour MPs were considered to be th- thinking about defecting to join the Conservatives. It was a very unlikely story, uh, it had to be said. And to me, it had the smack of a briefing coming out of somewhere close to some clever so-and-so near... Conservative central office, but I'm sure that Danny can uh, tell me that they don't do that kind. That they don't do that kind of thing. Um, uh, but the point is, in both cases and in many other cases, it's simply somebody getting a story out there without their name attached to it, which you can't verify. They're not accountable for, uh, and which then, which then, which then sits, which then sits out there. And I think we journalists should stop doing it. I really do. I can see I see why people do it, some kind of limited utility to it. But I think, essentially, it's a conspiracy both against the people who are the subject of those stories and against the public, because the journalist knows who this person is supposed to be, but no-one else does, and therefore can't evaluate it. I just think it's wrong. Well, I don't think you should run this story, for certain, um, particularly not in... The, I mean... There was a case for running it um, as a as a kind of story against the people who'd made that briefing, but not a story running it effectively uh, endorsing their perspective. Um, so, but I, I I do think I probably have a wider disagreement. I think that with David, um, which doesn't cover this particular story, I do think that generally um, you pick up a lot of information about things by. Um, people telling you things that they wouldn't necessarily say on the record and you learn a lot and just to give an example of that Dominic Cummings gave a huge number of off the record briefings to Laura Kunzberg um which I kind of guess were probably from Dominic Cummings they were completely accurate they were more accurate by the way than some of the reports that about his activities uh, you know sometimes negative in 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 newspapers that named him uh and um they helped me understand what was going on. And if he'd had to go on the record, he prob- quite probably wouldn't have said those things. And I would have learnt less. So um, I do see your point, David. It's kind of, kind of 
it is sometimes a bit hard to evaluate how seriously to take it, and you've got to take into account that the newspaper. <laughs> David's got and, his head in his hands. Yeah, I know. Well, I know. No, no, it's, no, no. it's not an easy one. I'm not. I'm not. I don't. I'm not saying David, you're definitely wrong. It's ridiculous because yeah. you've got a good example of a story which you're right. You know, uh, has all the downsides that you've always pointed out. This has, but I would say. I think you're being too absolutist about it, is what I really think. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, And uh, David, is that you could have, for instance, if you had uh, six cabinet ministers off the record in a story saying they opposed a plan that the Prime Minister had drawn up, then that, they're not going to go on the record, because they weren't on the record, they'd all have to resign. But it would be interesting to know that that was happening in the cabinet. I mean, the point, the, the actual point about even if, even if the SNP and this Angela Rayner story went on the record, it's still not really a story, is it? That's the, that's the, that's the, that's the, the problem with the story isn't the off the recordness. It's the stupidity of the Hold, 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 hold on, hold on. It wouldn't be made on the record. <laughs> that claim just wouldn't, the story wouldn't have yeah, happened. Five, five, because five, nobody, five, five. nobody would have gone on the record to do it. And if they had gone on the record to do it, we'd have known who, who, who would have done it. It can't exist. Friends of, allies of, sources close to, um, it's understood that, etc. Now, every now and again, uh, you know, you've given, if you like, both you and Danny, quite extreme examples of where you can get a utility. Although the Dominic Cummings thing, I don't agree with it. I remember those stories coming out. Yes. Most of us didn't know it was from Dominic Cummings. We had no idea where the... You where did not have from. no idea, David. No, 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 I didn't. No, honestly, I didn't know, Danny. And uh, the, You the didn't know that the Downing Street source hold, talking to Laura Kunzberg was Dominic Cummings? I didn't, I didn't know on. that for definite. And, I, and also, on. the thing is, he's so... Knowing that it's Dominic Cummings, also because he's not an impartial bystander on that either. It wasn't always him, by the way. Particularly, like no, no, it was particularly in the rows with, you know, if you've got, you know, there was a difference between Dominic, uh, Downing Street source Dominic Cummings and Downing Street source yeah. Lee Kane or uh, oh. the, the, the the cabinet secretary. But or they were Cameron. very informative. Yes. That's the point. No, no, no. Hold on. All the, those reports firstly, were very informative. Firstly, firstly, Danny, the public didn't know who it was. Second, you couldn't know whether it was informative or not if you didn't know who was doing it, because the story would immediately be contradicted by another source in number 10 <laughs> that said it wasn't true. And then if you oh. tax government ministers with what the story was, no. they would say, well, I don't think that's true. And since you couldn't tell them, and, and you, by the way, they would say, you can't tell me who said that, so why should I take any notice I, of it? I think and, we that's learned, exactly, and that's exactly what they did. I think we learned quite a lot about the thinking of the people around Boris Boris Johnson during the Dominic Cummings era, whether it be him, whether it be some of the people who were talking on his behalf, whether it be other people in that kind of vote leave group, through the, those those uh, anonymous reports. By the way, just to be clear, I often, which I often found ridiculous and I completely disagree with. Other times I found them interesting and um, right. Um, and um, I, I, I learnt a lot of it, and I certainly wouldn't have learnt those if they hadn't, if they'd been forced to make those points on the record. Partly because the staff uh, can't talk on the record, which I'm actually in favour of them being allowed to do. But that's that's a whole separate. Annie, who are these question. stories for? Who are these stories for? Are they for experts like you to pass because you've got the secret info that allows you to, <laughs> to judge them? Or, or, yes, or are actually. They, but, or, hold on. <laughs> yes, no, they are, are they, partly for that. So no, that so, they, so, but, so that I, my column, I can provide people uh, with with um, some sort of analysis of what they might mean. No. But that's no, what you and I do. No, they're for the public to make a judgment about what's going on and to be informed by them. Well, they're both, they're, they're, not, they do both they're not informed by stories that come out like that. I don't I think, think they are. Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich there. And of course, you can read them both in the Times every week, but you need to get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is planes, trains, and automobiles and ferries with Grant Chaps. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Yeah, you hope to get away this summer? Will your plane take off on time? Are you commuting by train? Is your ferry locked in the dock? Are you struggling to fill up your car? Yeah, for the big thing today, we are talking trains, planes and automobiles and, and ferries with the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps. And I wanted to do the radical thing on the show of getting the Transport Secretary on and asking him about transport. I know, I know, it, it, won't, it won't catch on. It won't, rather than shouting at him about COVID or parties or any other number of things he's not responsible for. But there's so much he is responsible for. From getting people back onto the railways to getting those P&O staff rehired. He is very much in the driving seat, but also in the cockpit. Did you know Grant Shapps is a trained pilot? So I started off by asking him about the sort of planes that he flies. So I became a pilot after um, uh, a sort of childhood of making paper planes uh, with my dad, who was always interested in aviation. He didn't fly or anything, but he he uh, he, he sparked my interest. Um, and then um, all, kind of always had it in mind as a kid that I'd love to learn to fly uh, one day. And I, once I um, started my printing um, business, I kind of made time in my diary to, to go and take uh, flying lessons a long time ago in 1995. So, uh, so I've been flying ever since and, um, and I love it. Um, the, it's, the, the, this is a, um, a private pilot's license. So it's, it's non-commercial uh, aircraft, I think technically up to 5,700 kilos, but I might be wrong about the exact uh, definition uh but small and tell me what's good about it what's bad about it what's the worst thing that's happened to you in the air have you had any near misses yeah I, what, what i love about that actually is you know in a world which is you're always very busy you're always kind of you know thinking about the next thing what have you and there's a sort of you you just are forced not to be able to do those things because you must focus on the flying <laughs> right so it's like um it's the ultimate being moved away from your phone uh up in the air you, you guys you know, so it's, which is great um and uh yeah you know obviously it's a um 
great great honor to be able to fly and 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 you 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 get to see our beautiful country and it is amazing from the sky people um you know particularly when you're when you're flying at a few thousand feet you really get to see the country um in a in a magnificent way and it is a beautiful place um to live it's 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 extraordinarily uh green and um and uh, yeah as, as i said it's, it's it, it is a fantastic joy it's interesting we've spoken to some of your uh, colleagues before about the various hobbies i know steve baker likes to throw himself out of planes I mean, do you do sort of like loop de loops, or you know? I have done a couple of, of do? I have done a couple of parachute drop drops, but uh, a, a long time ago. Um, but but not whilst I was flying the plane. Uh, no, I don't do any aerobatics <laughs> or or uh, okay. any 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 of that sort of uh, any of that sort of stuff. Um, but 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 I've been it's been a long time. I've been flying now, and um, uh, although not a hugely high hour pilot because i don't get all that much time to be up in the air but sometimes it does make it quick and easy to get around which is which is great my great passion is to take aviation and turn it into something where you can fly guilt-free as a commercial pilot you know as a commercial um passenger i mean and uh, a lot of that technology is coming up through the smaller aircraft so there's the world's first hydrogen aircraft is a small so it was a small six seat aircraft for example so it's in the general aviation space uh the, the the world some of the world's most impressive electric aircraft battery aircraft in that space again so it's a lot of innovation coming through which is leading which is going to lead through to guilt-free flying for everyone which is where we need to get to and what's the sort of time scale on that because i mean i suppose it makes sense you start with the smaller planes and work your way up but you know when when would you be able to book on a package a, a guilt-free package yeah. holiday going on your, your week's holiday, yeah. you think? Well, the bad news is 2050 is the sort of backstop, so because that sounds like a long way away. The good news is um, I will be announcing a very exciting challenge. Well, I'll tell you what the challenge is, actually, because I because it's 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 it, for those who've dug into the detail, they'd see it there. But I set up something with the Prime Minister called the Jet Zero Council, which is to get to zero carbon by 2050. And we set as our objective, put it on the webpage, the government webpage, um, that we will, that our first objective will be to fly a zero carbon, the world's first zero carbon passenger flight across the Atlantic. And I'm going to be saying more about that very, very um, soon. It's obviously a technological um, challenge to to, to do. Um, it'll probably use sustainable aviation fuel uh, in the first place. Um, so although the backstop is a long time away, 2050, actually, um, it's it's pretty much getting possible to do this now at a cost. But I think we can learn from the science of of, of trying it so i'm gonna i'm gonna really push the the, the industry to, to to get us there quick as quick as possible um on the subject of uh, planes people try to go away on their holidays over the easter break had a bit of a nightmare depending on which airport you were at manchester seemed particularly bad there were problems at gatwick too whose fault was that that people's holidays were were disrupted in that way i think i think several things combined here one you know a lot of the airlines the airports would have cut back a long way with this dreadful two years with uh, coronavirus and and uh, then found when you know we bounced back quicker perhaps than they thought not least because britain the uk did you know vaccinations first and therefore was able to come out of the lockdown uh, first of any major economy and they just underestimated uh, how much demand there would be and i think that's been part of the part, part, part of the problem um but uh, and then there were just been practical uh, practical elements to this as 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 well um coronavirus if you recall was was spiking again over the last few weeks so it's dropped now post um post post the uh the, the, the easter 
um, break, um, but but it spiked again. So a lot of people were off work, and, and and so that would have caused problems. I am concerned, and and, and I'm going to be meeting with um, some of the airlines who've been routinely cancelling a lot of flights. I just like you know the private businesses, but I'm sure it's in their interest as it is the travelling public to see uh, them get their schedules back together. And I'm I, I'm meeting with them this week to understand uh, you know what their plans to bring the schedules back together. You've got to bang some heads together and say this isn't on if people have saved up and booked the holiday. Uh, it, 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 in a nice way, yes. But, I mean, I, you know, they're private businesses, but I, it doesn't help them. Uh, same with the the, uh, the the airports as well. Um, you know, we, we, we need we, we we need to get reliability back into the system uh, again. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm looking at things like, uh, and I've consulted on things like what compensation should be and how it should be much more automatic for passengers um, so, you know, a bit like on my trains, you know, if the train's late, you can put in your 15 minute pay delay, you know, delay, repay, whatever. Actually, why, why aren't planes that automatic? You know, so, I, so I'm working with the CAA and we've done a consultation on that and looking at, at, at the outcome from it. In fact, you, you're very carefully uh, taking me on to my next item. We're working our way through planes, trains, automobiles. Trains is next. Answer me this question, first of all, who runs the trains now? And I know you're responsible for England. Who is in charge of the trains now? Have they been nationalised? Yeah. Actually, I'm responsible also for the track in Scotland and actually the track and infrastructure in Wales. So, so, so it's not quite that. See, so, it's, so, it's, so it's, it's even more complicated. So it's even more complicated. So, <laughs> the classic sort of British sort of devolved, partly devolved kind of kind of way. Um, so, so the trains um, clearly would not have been able to continue running with at the worst point ten percent of the normal passenger numbers on there. So, uh, the government, the taxpayer has very kindly stumped up £16 billion or thereabouts, £16 billion, to make sure that the system could be continued, that the the, the, the workforce, not a single one of them lost their job, et cetera, uh, and were in place. Um, that, that necessitated uh, taking quite a lot of control. As it so happens, uh, I'd already... Uh, launch the the, the Shaps Williams uh, review, the, the the white paper that we'll be legislating for uh, in the uh, in the Queen's speech, the upcoming Queen's speech, um, to to have a single railway, much less fragmented, but still with private capital and private businesses uh, involved as well, because they bring the money in, they bring the innovation in, uh, but they'll be asked to run a service of a certain quality. If they don't run it at that quality, they don't get paid. It's as simple as that. Um, now, uh, I don't want it to sound like it's just my own experience, because actually I think there are lots of people who experience this. If you were a regular commuter before, uh, you know, maybe into London or to other big cities, you had your season ticket or whatever, you probably decided where you were going to live based on, you know, the reliability of service. I've now got 25% fewer trains. They take 25% longer and I'm paying more than I was before because it's gone up by nearly 4%. How, how do you explain that? The service has got worse and the price is going up. So, so we're in the process of building back the services. Um, just to put figures on it, we're, we're just under still 75% of the passengers. Uh, the services, I'll, I, I can cross-check this for you and, and, and get you more accurate numbers, but I think I'm right in saying that the services are higher than that. Uh, but it, it, you know, it is the case, and we have to recognise it, that the world has changed. People are not working into the same work patterns. You know this yourself. Particularly noticeable, actually, if you get on the train at the weekend, where I find on a commuter line into London, they can, for example, they can be incredibly busy, busier than they were yeah. before. But on a work day during the rush hour, perhaps less, uh, although we're seeing it come back. So it's not settled. There's not a settled position at all as yet. Look, just let me put my cards on the table. I want to see our railway bigger than it was before. We're building it bigger and better. 
You know, I've got all this investment going in through the integrated rail plan, 96 billion, HS2, lots of additions to uh, the, the network to the to the pipeline of, of improvements. So make no mistake, we I believe that people will travel, uh, that they're going to come back, that they are already coming back, and we're part way through rebuilding that service. And it's just, I think it's the growing pains of building the service up at the same speed that people are coming back to the to the service that we're we're all going through. So in the interest of getting people back back on the trains, increasing the services, are you signed up to the Jacob Rees Mogg get back to the office? edict or are you signed up to the Nadine Doris it all sounds a bit Dickensian. I'm a pragmatist on these things actually I mean for a start I run the department for transport so obviously fantastic when people travel I'm about to travel up to London myself but but um uh, you know but at the same time I'm very conscious in DFT 1,000 new colleagues have joined since coronavirus some of those will never have had the opportunity to meet face to face the people they're working with every day. Right. So I think particularly for younger uh, people, maybe. Uh, but for all of us, you know, having that ability to meet face to face and have the, the in the margin, but the coffee machine, you know, conversation in the, in the cafeteria conversation is incredibly important. But I'm not a sort of an absolutist. I, I don't think that, you know, I think the, I think we recognize that some meetings are just faster or more efficient when you can you know jump on it. Us right now, for example, we, As we are we're not together. Exactly, yeah. We are we are down the line, and it's just more convenient. But I do, but but I do recognise the the importance of departments coming back, and and actually DFT have been fairly enthusiastic, pretty enthusiastic about coming back in as well. You're doing quite well in the league table, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, because I mean, we, we are the department for transport for travel, so people probably just just like it. Right, let's move on then and talk about automobiles. Uh, I suppose the first question is, what car do you drive? I, I have a Tesla. Uh, the second one I've had, I've, I've been an electric car driver for the last three years. Um, it wasn't because I became transport secretary. I'd actually ordered it in advance at, at a very long wait, I, I, probably five years ago. And I had a very long wait. Um, and and uh, as everybody knows, um, this country is going sort of by 2030 to end the sale of, of, of uh, 100% diesel and petrol cars so actually everybody's going to end up having to go electric or perhaps a few people hydrogen we'll we'll, we'll see how that develops and what about government cars the old government cars sitting outside parliament with their engines running yeah uh still still quite gas guzzly when are they going to be all green well they're being they're being shifted over pretty fast so even the most evil looking ones which are probably the big range rover uh cars actually they're hybrids uh, so they're already running 50 miles on uh, on, on, on electric. Uh, quite a large part of the fleet are now uh, the I-Pace Jaguars. Uh, they're 100% uh, electric, uh, and the switchover is happening ahead of the broader 2030. So I th- I forget the date. I can cross-check it for you, but but it, it happens well ahead of the 2030 that uh, is being required across the country. Do you wish, with hindsight, and less so because, like you said, you, you've been transport secretary for uh, three years, but do you think, as a country, we should have pushed on with this a bit more? And actually, we'd have now been less exposed to what's happening in Russia and Ukraine if we were less reliant on petrol. It's very interesting because, um, actually, we're, we're, we're doing much better than people recognise with electric vehicles. For example, uh, we have uh, more rapid chargers per 100 miles of road than any other country in Europe. To give you one example, the number of charges on the street have um, doubled since it became transport um, secretary. So there are 30,000 available now. There are only 8,500 petrol stations in this country. And by the way, if you have an electric car, 70% plus of people 
uh, will be parking them off road. Um, so, you know, whereas by comparison, nobody lives in a petrol station. So you know, effectively, um, you know, uh, two thirds plus of people will, will charge their, their vehicles primarily uh, overnight um, uh, uh, at home. My challenge is to make sure those who don't have a driveway are still able to charge. And so I've just announced we're going to go from the 30,000 public chargers on the streets to 300,000. So, you know, by 2030. So, you know, there are going to be ample chargers available. That's that, that that's the goal. To answer your question directly, though, we, we don't buy our petrol from Russia. We buy some of our diesel from Russia. I think 18% of it at the pump was, was from Russia. We're going to end that by the end of the year. We don't buy any of our petrol from there. It clearly doesn't. It clearly, there's an international market in all, it's all of this. Part of the, yeah. And I think, you know, what, what, what I'd say is, of course, of course, we, I want us to go further and I want us to go faster, though, as I say, we, we pretty much leave the, the European league table, particularly of countries who manufacture cars. But countries like Germany uh, will, will need to do a lot more. They are very reliant on, uh, on, on Russian hydrocarbons uh, in a way that we're not exposed, even though the price exposes us uh, because it's a global market. And are you having conversations with the, the the petrol stations? The way that the the price goes up as soon as there's any international yeah. event, the price rockets up, and it comes down very slowly as the wholesale price comes down. Is that something that you're you're putting pressure on 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 those petrol stations very, to very, pass on when the cost? Very very much so. And I'm actually interested in um, you know. I know that competition emerges, you know, the, the competition authorities looked into them several times and they say there's good competition. That's fine. But I think there's two things. One, actually, there's a part for all of us consumers to play, which is, you know, you all know where the cheaper petrol is, typically at a supermarket or whatever. You can drive down the price everywhere by by, by shopping around. That will help. But I'm also interested in whether the uh, whether it is true. That um, that they're bringing the putting up the prices quickly and bringing them down much more uh, slowly. So you know, a price watch of some type is is something which I wouldn't rule out. Just finally, then, Grant, uh, we've done planes, trains, and automobiles. Let's do uh, boats, in particular ferries. Everyone was shocked by what happened at PNO. They, le- they laid off eight hundred staff uh, to bring in agency workers. At the time, the PM said they were going to face the full force of the law. Uh, I think you said that they're going to have to reverse the decision and rehire them. That's not happened. What's going on? They are going to have to reverse it because I'm going to change the law. I mean, they've, they what they've done is exploited and outrageously exploited a loophole in the law, um, but actually admitting to having broken the law deliberately, you know, set out to do that. That was their intention and that they would do it again. Well, I'm changing the law. Uh, it'll be announced in the Queen's speech, uh, as I've already told Parliament, um, to close that particular loophole, which involved them flagging in a in another country and and, and the rest of it. Um, so they won't be able to get away with that. And I'll tell you what, they're going to have to U-turn on this. They might as well understand that now. I'm afraid that the boss is going to have to go. He he, he you know he's actually come to uh, to you know I think there's there's no credibility there. And in my view, they should also pay back the furlough money. Uh, that they took. It's about £11 million. I, I, I really don't think it's sustainable for them to have taken that furlough money and then sacked the staff. So there's a whole range of things they will need to do before P&O can get rehabilitated. Grant Chaps, Transport Secretary, thanks so much for joining us on Times Radio. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from?
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.